lyrically, uh, I, I think I mentioned this in the last time we were talking. I said, I, I, I feel uh, I'm speaking metaphorically now. I think, uh, if someone were to say to me, why does, um, why do you like Kate Bush so much? There's a variety of reasons musically, but I think thematically I said, she always reminds me to look up and, um, by look up, I mean, think about things in a bigger, more spiritual sense uh, to think about bigger things. I first discovered it when I first was getting into Kate Bush when I was 15, 16 and the entry album for me was, um, Hounds of Love and, over that year, that was what um, sophomore year, going to junior year of high school, I really developed a strong love for that album. And one of the songs that has always stuck stuck out um, stood out to me was the Big Sky. It's triumphant. It's quirky. It's it's a kind of a triumphant um, anthem for shy people in a way. It's always had a place in my heart. Welcome to Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. I am Cecily Link, and this week we're continuing into the Hounds of Love, the first side of Hounds of Love, talking about the song The Big Sky. With me to talk about the song this week is somebody who has been on the show before. In fact, both of our guests have been on the show before. And our first guest is... Hi, my name is Diego. I've been... I actually believe I was on the last episode, if you're hearing this now. Uh, oh, wait, for the... For Hounds of Love, the title track? No. Oh, no, no. Oh, shoot. I got things mixed up. I was on Running Up That Hill. Mm-hmm. Yes, you were my fan for Running Up That Hill. So, yes, we've heard from him before. Now we're going to get to hear from him again for The Big Sky. Rick Campbell. And, yeah, we've had you on the show several times before as well. Yes, yeah. I've talked about um, a couple of things with you. I think one of the most recent, oh, the most recent episode was Get Out of My House. I remember that one now. Yes, and Peter Pan. That was the other one. Mm-hmm. In search of Peter Pan. So this week we're talking about The Big Sky, which you had said was one of your favorite Kate Bush songs. So what's your history with The Big Sky? Okay, so I think the first time I heard Hounds of Love was probably when I was living in London, England with my brother in an area called Finsbury Park. Uh, in 1985, uh, my um, girlfriend and I went to the UK and we lived there for several months and did some traveling as well. But we were in um, staying, <laughs> we were crashing in my brother's uh, living room. Uh, he was renting a flat at the time um, and with his wife, who had, they had just got married, and uh, he had the album. Ah. So I, I'm pretty sure the very first time 
I heard that album was probably in my brother's uh, living room, which was also a party room, which was also, it was kind of the everything room. Uh, So, uh, yeah, and uh, it knocked me out. uh, I blew my mind. And um, uh, what more can I tell you about that? Nothing, really. Uh, But but, uh, Big Sky was on it, and I I have a vague memory of sitting in the living room with my brother and Big Sky coming on. And the very first, after the first verse, of course, the, the, the radio edit that seems to be per, uh, uh, Kate's pervasive choice now mm-hmm. um, is not the edit that we listened to on the vinyl album that was released in 1985. Um, the way that uh, I guess a lot of people, including myself, are hearing The Big Sky now is the version that she seems to prefer, which mm-hmm. has found its way onto the new remix release, which sort of has her singing the first verse uh without any kind of percussion and uh the fair light and then the drums come in whereas if you bought the album in 1985 and perhaps the first cd i don't have my original cd of it that i bought back in the 90s but anyway if if you bought um that or the original vinyl you would have heard drums right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyhow, I prefer that version. <laughs> Kate, Me too. <laughs> if, if you're listening, <laughs> uh, obviously you don't. Uh, so, you know, it's your song. So, um, yeah. So uh, I remember after she, she sings the first, I'm looking at the big sky. There's uh, that cloud, that cloud. It looks like Ireland. And there's a kind of a, where a backing vocal thing where she in harmony, in multi-tracked voice goes, goes diddly die, diddly, mm-hmm. diddly die, diddly die, do. And I looked at my brother and I said, that sounds like a Beatles harmony. <laughs> that sounds psychedelic. That sounds like something that the Beatles would have done around the time of Revolver or even Sergeant Pepper. And my brother said, yeah, I know. It's pretty psychedelic. This is before, <laughs> before I heard the rest <laughs> of the album, which is totally psychedelic. So, um, so that that kind of grabbed me right away. The fact that she was dabbling and kind of, I don't know what that harmonic is. You probably know better than me. That harmony that they're, that she, I should say, is doing. Uh, it's just like the, the second diddly die, diddly die, diddly die, do has got, ends on a kind of Beatlesque um, piled up harmony. So uh, that grabbed me. And then the way that the song just builds and builds and builds and just becomes like this massive, brilliant dance track uh, just blew me away. I just like I just thought this is amazing. And, and years later, it, it, it kind of became my favorite uh, of her tracks for a variety of reasons that aren't just musical. But um, so that was the first time I heard it. And then um uh, after that, we played it a few times, and of course, played the Ninth Wave, which I couldn't believe. And uh, you know, like in 1985, nobody was doing concept anything really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that there were a few alternative alternative artists who were doing conceptual stuff, but even uh, most prog bands by 1985, those that were left standing, weren't indulging in prog. Right. I think the only thing that I heard in the 80s that could be construed as a concept album would be Husker Du or Husker Du's Zen Arcade, 
which is a, a concept album. But um, a conceptual second side from Kate Bush was, you know, was just unheard of. But anyway, we're not talking about that. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so then, I, of course, I did a lot of traveling and there was a lot of other music to listen to that year. And I was living in London and going to a lot of gigs and uh and so there was, uh, you know, my attention wasn't completely focused on her. When we got back to, I did tape tape my brother's copy. And then when we got back, I, I was playing it a lot, uh, back to Canada, I should say, which was the following year, like 86, I guess February of 1986, I came back to Canada. I had been there in England since July of 85. Just after Live Aid. In fact, two days after Live Aid is when oh. our plane landed. So um watch Live Aid in Orillia, which is this little town in uh, Ontario, about uh, an hour and a half north of Toronto. Then I, th- I think the next day we were on the plane to England. So um, uh, we were doing summer theater in Orillia. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I'm trying to remember when the album sort of, I guess probably uh, in, uh, um, I, I, I guess I would have heard it. I would have been playing it. We, at least and I moved in together the summer of that year in Toronto after having lived in, I, me having lived in Hamilton, which is a steel town, not far from Toronto mm-hmm. for several years. And then uh, I decided to, we decided to get a place together. We put together a stereo from, pieces you know a, a, a tape deck here or speakers from there whatever and we had a stereo so i was playing it a lot there uh really into it um and the big sky just came to take on more and more uh importance and um i think musically it became fascinating to find out that youth played on it and uh so why is the big sky one of your favorite Kate Bush songs um, it's kind of hard to answer that, really. It really is. I think that this song was, um, I first discovered it when I first was getting into Kate Bush when I was 15, 16, and the entry album for me was um, Hounds of Love, and over that year, that was what, um, sophomore year going to junior year of high school I really developed a strong love for that album and one of the songs that has always stick, stuck out, um, stood out to me was The Big Sky it's triumphant, it's quirky it's, it's a, kind of a triumphant um, anthem for shy people in a way it's always had a place in my heart Mm-hmm yeah, it is like just especially toward the end, like the whole song is just half of the song is just repeating and rolling over like big, big cloud rolling out over the big sky. Yeah. <laughs> but it never gets old. The lyrics are very interesting. She's kind of experimenting with lyrics like she did with the B-sides or um, Hounds of Love. And it's, it's kind of like making a popular song out of unpopular things. And I think K-Push is really good at that. It's a great song. Yeah, I think the lyrics especially are really, I agree with you, they're really interesting in this song. I mean, it's not a very lyric-heavy song, really, um, especially because the last couple minutes are just her repeating the um, 
repeating the same lines and then ad-libbing like a crazy person as <laughs> she tends yeah. to do. But I think what's especially like kind of intrigued me about the song are the first couple lines. They look down at the ground missing, but I never go in now. I'm like, what is that about? You know, there's a couple of Kate Bush songs. I mean, they're usually ones I do really love. Burning Bridges. That's mm-hmm. like kind of felt connection with this and the B-side. Um, it's kind of, it's simultaneously detailed and so vague. Like, what is she talking about? Um, that in um, Constellation of the Heart, which is on the on the very top of my favorite Capus songs. Actually, that song references the big sky. That's why I saw, I saw them as, as, as similar. I don't know if that song's as beloved as the big sky, but I love it. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Constellation of the Heart, to be honest. <laughs> it's I, I feel like a lot of people do. I feel like, yeah, it's something you either really like, or like in your case, or me, I'm like, eh, I'm ambivalent about it. <laughs> I mean, that's the song where, where she ad-libs, and it's really, it's, that album is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like, it's either an album that you love, or you're like, yeah. But this song, at first, I um, thought this was a song with a similar reputation. I didn't know. No one, I've never really heard people talk about it when they talk about this album. So I wasn't really sure if people actually liked this song. It kind of felt like the the um, black sheep of that side, even though I feel like the true black sheep of that um, side, the real, the one that people have mixed opinions on is Mother Stands for Comfort. I don't know if I like that song, but I know I like The Big Sky a lot. It's The Big Sky is one of the songs, well, it's ma- it's pretty much magical because, hey, it's one of the songs that when it first starts up, and a lot of the songs from this album are like this, when it first starts up, you know immediately what song it is. Mm-hmm. You're immediately stoked, and it's just a song that changes my mood when, when I hear when it comes on just... Um, the beginning of it, it's just, it's a happy song. That it is. And I'm not surprised, I'm not surprised that it sounds so happy because of, you know, at this point, Kate was recording in her own home studio and so she was around her family and she's talked about, especially on this, for this song, that when she when she was writing the songs that she was looking out over big green fields and big open skies. And it probably reminded her a lot of being a kid and like going outside and watching the clouds and like, Oh yeah, that cloud looks like this. That cloud looks like that. And just being a kid. I really think that some of her um, happy songs and the songs where you can really feel her, um, passion and imagination are when she's right either inspired closely by her family members or writing close to her family members because I mean her family played an important role in um, the beginning of her career and play still play an important role in um, her creative process I, I um, you, there's songs like moments of pleasure that are immensely sad because it's talking about loss of, of family and I, um, she was she was encouraged heavily by her parents to um, to pursue 
um, her imagination and um, a lot got a lot of help musically from her brother. It's, it's, I am correct. Yeah, and, and her her brothers played a lot of played a lot of different music and uh, especially the folk kind of music and yeah they were they were a big influence on her. Yeah, and this is this is at the moment when she's finally getting her um, complete control from EMI, right? Yeah, she had built her own studio so she could just tinker around at her own pace and not have to worry, oh no, I've been here for two hours and this studio costs X number of dollars. Like with the dreaming, like she practically went into debt making the dreaming because she was experimenting so much and it, and especially like this album goes so far away from, okay, we're with a bunch of musicians we're all jamming together and recording that in the same room. Like that's not how this yeah. song was recorded or anything really on uh, Hounds of Love. I really think that this album can be made in um, a traditional studio setting. I I feel like if she was still recording um, in the EMI studio, that it would be it would be. And I love the dream, and I think it's garnered a great cult following. But um, there's pro- problems occur when you're not given um, c- complete freedom of time and money and resources. And this is when we see um, her um, achieve uh, uh, artistic maturity, really. Um, Big Sky was very difficult to write. Uh, I knew what I wanted to finish up with, but I didn't seem to be able to get there. And we had three different versions. And um, eventually it just kind of turned into what it did, thank goodness. That was really about... You know the thing of when uh, I used to do it a lot when I was a kid, we'd go out somewhere and sit up and look at the sky, and if you watch the clouds long enough, they take on um, different shapes, you know, you can see dinosaurs in them or castles. And at the time I was writing this album, we were living in the country, and uh, my keyboards and stuff were in this room overlooking a valley, and I'd sit and watch the clouds uh, rolling uphill towards me. And uh, there is a lot of weather on this album, uh, the countryside was a big inspiration uh, at this time. Uh, and it's always changing. It's a very different perspective from living in a city. Uh, sometimes you hardly see the sky above the buildings at all. Lyrically, uh, I, I think I mentioned this in the last time we were talking. I, sa- I, 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 <clears throat> I feel, uh, I'm speaking metaphorically now. I think uh, if someone were to say to me, why, does, um, why do you like Kate Bush so much? There's a variety of reasons musically, but... I think thematically, I said she always reminds me to look up, and um, by look up, I mean think about things in a bigger, more spiritual sense. Uh, to think about bigger things than, you know, how hard my day's been, or, or, um, you know, mm-hmm. what, what, you know. She always, when I'm going through a tough time. If I were to, I'm to listen to something like The Big Sky, it always reminds me there's something bigger than you. Yeah. And if you, if you engage with that, it will help you. Kind of like that song, um, Love and Anger. Uh, it's the same kind of, you know, if you just open yourself up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you'll, you'll get the help that you need. 
So um, the big sky does that to the max because it literally tells you to look up at the sky. And I remember I, I, there's been occasions in my life I was doing a show in the wintertime up in Sudbury once, and I used to have to walk from the house I was staying in in Sudbury, which is an, an old nickel city in uh, Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, which has fallen slight. Uh, well, I think they're coming back now, but they fell on pretty hard times when the, in the 80s, like a, a lot of states in the eastern seaboard uh, did. Um, but anyway, they have a great theater company there, and I've worked for them a few times. And I was doing a show. My It was the first time I was there. And the day after I got there, I just got dumped on like tons of snow. Mm. So this this rather gray, rocky, um, uh, black rock town that's been mined within an inch of its life um, was a winter wonderland. It mm-hmm. looked like a picture postcard everywhere. So I was probably had my head down because I was um, thinking about the show I was working on and am I going to be any good or, you know, like, I, and I used to think about all kinds of things walking. I always listened to music while I was walking to the theater for rehearsal. And I listened to Kate Bush a lot because my old, my younger brother had given me a um, an MP3 player that he didn't want anymore that had a whole bunch of Kate on it. And, uh, so I could listen to her. And uh, so I was playing all of her records and I was playing uh, a a collection of B-sides that I'd never heard before and stuff. But uh, push comes to shove, if I'm in trouble, I'm going to play The Big Sky while I'm walking to the theater or something off of Ariel. So uh, I I remember I played it a lot. And, uh, you know, as soon as I hear the song, I look up. Mm -hmm. And if I'm outside, I'm walking, I, I look up at the sky. And in Sudbury, unlike some places in Toronto, you can look up and you can see a big sky, mm-hmm. you know. And I just came back from the UK and Germany, and there were a couple of times where I was in Cornwall in England, and I was in a very, very small village in northern Germany where I got more big sky than I could handle. <laughs> <laughs> so it was absolutely stunning. and um, And, of course, the ocean, you know. Mm-hmm. The Baltic Sea, and uh, the, I was on about as I was so far south uh, in England that there was no more south. There was only north. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's yeah. how south in England I was, where everything is north. You know, if you turn around, so that was pretty amazing. And um, yeah, I looked up and I thought of that song. I couldn't help but think of that song. You know. Mm-hmm. And I was going. She's always telling me to look up. She's always telling me to look at the big picture. There's something bigger. I mean, the whole second disc of Ariel is that too, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I've been rambling. <laughs> Feel free to jump in. So yeah, and so that album sort of, you know, I got home and I was playing it a bit at home, and then I don't know, somewhere around the summer of '86. No, it would have been spring of '87, maybe. You know. Late 86, I just started really playing the ninth wave obsessively and just trying to parse it and just blown away. Just like going, this is like this whole album is a work of genius, you know, like she's really come into her own. Like this is like a woman who is now in control of her sound, in control of her art. And clearly, you know, she took a number of years to get this record out because she's got the cachet 
and the money to be able to go, no, I'm not, you know, it'll be ready when it's ready, which she does to this day. Yep. So, um, so anyway, and then, um, and then I guess, uh, through the eighties and the nineties, of course, I came back to that album a lot, but it was, um, it was after Ariel, Ariel sort of got me back into her catalog heavily. And, um, so this song became increasingly important to me. I think it becomes increasingly important to me as I get older, because I get older, I start to think about my mortality. I think about, um, I think about I'm, uh, I'm not where I want to be in my life, in my career, what happened. It feels like I'm heading towards the last roundup. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, things that one thinks about when one hits the age of 60. And uh, which is, of course, I guess Kate's going to be 60 or has just turned or is going to turn 60 soon. Um, actually, so, she's going to be uh, 61. She's going to be 61 okay. as of this recording, 2019. Okay. Okay, because I um, I know she's about the same age as my younger brother, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, her her ability to tap into the unknown, the unseen, nature, the sort of things that are always here, even though they're endangered now, but. Uh, her encouraging she encourages one to engage with the natural world yes and with the spiritual world and to go back to her early stuff you see that that was always present even when she was a teenager that she always had her head um in to something that was bigger than us just people and that people are more than you know a job People are more than, um, you know, love is a, is, a, is a big thing. It's a great big thing. And uh, she deals with those larger big things beautifully, I think. And I think mm-hmm. the big sky is just a, a kind of distillation of um, – a distillation of all of her concerns, all of her interests in one song. I, I mean, there's always – there's something else going on in the song, too. I mean, there's, it's kind of a kiss-off song. Yes. Like, I don't know who she's singing to when she says, you never really understood me, you never really tried. Um, because I know that she was with Dell another few years after that. So I, I don't know whether she's speaking to a mentor or, some, or, or a friend or an acquaintance or the record company, who mm-hmm. knows, um, or, or the public. But there's, some, there's that aspect of it, too, you know? Yeah. Which, you know. I guess isn't as important, but I guess it. I, I, maybe I seize on that a bit too, especially when I'm going through something and I'm I'm thinking, you know, people don't really know me. They think they know me, but they don't. You know, mm-hmm. they think they've got me figured out, but I don't think they do. <laughs> yeah, you know, you don't understand me because first of all, if you go, what are you listening to that woman with a funny voice for? Then you don't get me at all. You know, mm-hmm. you you don't get it. You know, like you're not hearing what I'm hearing, right? Which is yeah. true of a lot of music, right? And uh, um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, I, oh, and I'm, I'll tell you one more thing. I love dancing to the song, obviously. And I got to <laughs> dance to Cloud Busting doing it. And I went to my brother's 50th birthday party. That was, the, I guess, my first trip back to England after about 13 years. 
because I used mm-hmm. to go a lot and I'm going a lot again in my life. Um, partially because I can, because I've got a free place to stay and partially because I, part of me goes, you should be living there. You know, I should have been living in London, you know, and it just, my life just didn't work out that way. But I always feel like I'm at home when I'm there. So I went back uh, for my, uh, I think I was only there for about six or seven days. I went back for my brother's 50th birthday party. And he made this incredible playlist for the party. You know, they had it at this restaurant. And, uh, but they had a dance floor. And so we all had dinner upstairs and then went downstairs where there was bar and there was, they cleared it so there could be a dance floor. And all of his close friends uh, in England were there. And he just played, it was an incredible playlist because his musical taste is brilliant. So uh, it was all, uh, I remember I was standing at the bar talking to one of his friends. And it was just an iPod he had hooked up to a sound system. He made the made the playlist like weeks before. I guess he was probably a work in progress right up to the end there. And Big Sky came on. And I, <laughs> I, and I remember looking at the guy and I went, you're going to have to excuse me. I have to go. I'll be back later. Mm-hmm. And I hit the dance floor. And I swear to God, it was one of the best times I've had dancing. You know, like and there were a number of us on the floor dancing to it, including my brother, um, who is probably as fanatical about Kate Bush as I am. And uh, just having the best time is coming through a great sound system in this restaurant and just blaring. And it was just the best. It's such a great dance track, such a great track to dance to. So. I think what really strikes me about the song is that the theme of it is not something that you really hear in most music that would be played on the radio. And I'm going to say music that played on, plays on the radio because this was released to be played over the airwaves. And you don't get a lot of yeah. songs that talk about remembering the simple pleasures that you enjoyed when you were a kid and that you don't really have the time for anymore, like going outside and watching the clouds and imagining that they're shaped in different, they're in different shapes. Yeah, definitely not at this time. I don't think there's radio hits around in the mid mid eighties that approach, um, everyday life and the beauty of mundane life and childhood like this. What came to mind was Landslide by Fleetwood Mac, but that's not, that's not in the same mood. That's Mm-mm. really seeing everything. That's, that's from the point of, of just seeing everything as um, being stuck in the past, um, but not present. Um, yeah. This, uh, this song is, is, is really i mean it it defines whatever age um the the narrator's at and i can't really i can't really find um think of songs today that are like this yes so what about the lyrics what's like i mean the, the lyrics are not super important i don't think in this song feel free to throw tomatoes at me but it's so much about like her performance of this and it's the performance that shines 
God. What is your like favorite uh, lyrical moment? Do you have it? Well, this song for me, when I first heard it a few a couple of times, it, it took me a while to figure out what she was actually saying. <laughs> but I really common like refrain. The, what? A common refrain with Kate. What is she saying here? Is this even English? Yeah. Well, it's not Cocktoo Twins, even. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no shade on the Cockney Twins. I love Elizabeth Fraser and the, um, all that band's great music. But, um, no, um, like, the, the two the two standards, um, that cloud, that cloud looks like Ireland. Come on and blow it a kiss now, but quick. That cloud looks like Ireland. And um, this cloud, this cloud says, Noah, come on and build me an ark. And if you're coming, jump, because we're living, leaving with the big sky. This cloud, this cloud says, Why would you put in a song that you did want to put on the radio? The last thing you would expect was for the decision to put in a, a line that suggests that there's a cloud that looks like Ireland. Mm. It's just, it's just, it, it, it seems like um, radio friendly songs don't talk about the shapes of clouds. Mm-mm. Or, or the the beautiful mundanity of daily life, but it, those those um, those lines really go go to show why this song's um, great. But but the song really does lie on how it's performed, mm-hmm. and um, the line that 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 transitions into a great performance is and we pause for the jets <laughs> yes <laughs> pause that jets. line when i first realized what she was saying and then what happens after that that was why that was like i didn't even know you could do that in a song like and we pause for the jets and there's this moment of silence and then um just the the um the chaos ensues it makes me think of like when you're when you're a kid and say you're out in the middle of a field you've got nothing else to do and you're just and you are looking at the sky and watching the clouds go by and saying, oh, this one looks like a balloon. That one looks like 
oh, teacup, that one looks like blah, blah, blah. And that it's all nice and quiet. And then suddenly like a jet comes along, like, I don't know, maybe you're near an airport. And so you're like, okay, yep, we got to pause for that to go by because it's a loud noise. And then we just go back to being all ooh, imaginative. That's what it makes me think of. Yeah. I love that this, this album really, it plays with pers- perspectives and character roles and um, this dynamic between adulthood and childhood and the perceptions of life as this grand treat, this, this very lush, very um, curiosity-sparking thing or this very serious, endangering, worrisome kind of thing. I, I think it's a it's the sh- shift in, um, from track to track mm-hmm. because you have songs like "Sounds of Love" that that talk about love in a very coming of age kind of way, and then you have the very adult concerns of the ninth wave. And this song really, really, the big sky really takes the childhood curiosity for everything and offers it for the adult listener and mm-hmm. and not in a condescending or childish manner it's very it's very accessible except for the speeching for some people <laughs> yeah that turned off my parents for sure i think probably my favorite part of the song is in the very end right as the uh right before they're rolling over like a great big cloud when she says, tell them sisters. <laughs> it's just like, she's all I sexy. Know. Tell them oh, sisters. Oh, I forgot about that. Is it just her doing that part? Yeah. It's just all of her vocals. I love that. She's like, tell them sisters. Like, Oh, it's a bunch of like, it's, she's talking to a bunch of backup singers, but no, it's just a bunch of overdubs with her. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because it's kind of a reference to what's on the radio at that time. A lot of songs with backup singers of, of empowerment ballads. Mm. Um, yeah. Like this is, this is the height of eighties Tina Turner and Whitney Houston and, and American musicians who have um, backup singers. And I think this is a playful subver- subversion when you have Keith Bush, um, at, like, Tell them, sister. <laughs> and it's just overdubbed. Um, track, uh, it's, it's her. It's mm-hmm. hilarious. <laughs> My goodness, the 80s hit that comes to mind with sisters in the title. The sisters are doing it for themselves, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's um, Aretha Franklin, right? And um, Annie Lennox. Mm-hmm. That's an overlooked duo. That is a cool song, but... And I don't believe there's been any covers or anything. Uh, let's see. Of this song, I haven't really been... I haven't really talked about covers for songs. I know we talked about it in the Running Up That Hill episode. And... Because yes. um, uh, I mentioned, you know... That... Placebo. That, what? Because we oh. were mentioned placebo. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Um, they're right when I was gonna thank you. (laughs) I was gonna thank you for um, 
showing me that uh, Meg Meyer song because that's become a summer jam of mine this summer. It's a great cover. Oh, yeah, that's right. We were emailing about that. I know. it's. I yeah. love it. It's so cool. It's so cool. The new music video for it, because because when it came out, there wasn't an official music video yet. And now it's, it's really creative. It's, it's it, I don't know. It, it just, it, it shows the potential of a good Kate um, Bush cover. Also, Solange just covered um, Cloud Busting. Oh, I have heard about that. Very good live cover. Mm. We'll write that down to look at. But I believe, um, I don't know if this song could be covered well. I don't know either. I, I do say on Kate Bush Encyclopedia, it does say that it's been covered, uh, some of the groups that have covered this song. Um, apparently it's been covered by the Affordable Floors and Good Night is in Night, K-N-I-G-H-T Productions, The Hounds of Love and TM Collective. I've never heard any of those versions, but I don't think that this could be covered well because it is so much, like so much of Kate's songs, it's so much about Kate's performance of it that if you... Yes. If you take that, if you take her performance away from the song, you either have to do something completely different with it to really and really make it your own or try to imitate her. And guys, we really should not imitate her. Kate is Kate. A lot of this song relies on the improvisation and the ad-libbing and the, um, the screeching. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant. And it's, it's, Okay. And in fact, in regards to those vocals, because let me tell you, like those vocals are what really turned my parents off of this song when they heard me playing it in the car after I bought Hounds of Love for super cheap at a thrift store, that she was probably under the influence of alcohol when she recorded it. Okay. I could see that. I, I've heard stories of her working on albums while high, not alcohol, not drugs. Yeah, apparently she was, it was this song and, uh, oh, was, oh, Jig of Life. Those two songs, she got herself okay. drunk to record herself for them. I could see Jig of Life, needing, like her doing that for Jig of Life. Um, that's a really dramatic song, but you need to kind of be a little a little over dramatic for. Mm-hmm. Because it's like it's all about just like getting back to when you were a kid and enjoying things that you did as a kid that you just don't do anymore, and just like being exuberant and being loud and and wild in a way that. You kind of lose when you're an adult, if we're being, like, kind of cynical here. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking that this is this is a song that's great, um, 365, like, every, um, all year long. But it, it's a really good summer song because it, it hits back to the very childhood nostalgia, but but ageless nostalgia. And it's, it's really something that reminds me of 
just bar- barbecuing, just enjoying a, a summer day. And it reminded me that there is one song that is similar, and it, I believe it comes out in 86, 1986. But it is, it's a little cynical. It's a, that's where it, it splits off, but it's um, Summer's, Summer's Cauldron by XTC. That is very much romanticizing the weather and, and, and seeing the narrator narrator get lost in, in it and um, just embracing it. Certainly there are more B-sides and collaborations even for this album season than there was the previous season, that's for sure. Are there more um, collaborations than the big one that that comes to mind? Yeah, there is, actually. Um, Later this season, in addition to Don't Give Up, there is uh, the song that uh, that she did with Big Country called The Seer. And yes. then um, do bears with a you know, do bear shalala in the woods. <laughs> okay, was that one of the comedy mm-hmm. um, songs? Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's so there's that those collaborations, and then there's like oh man, there's so many B sides. I mean, including the one for um, the Big Sky when this was released as a single because this was the last single from hounds of love so it wasn't released until 1986 mm-hmm. um we got not this time on the b-side which, okay oh i love that song her b-sides for this album are phenomenal they are yes truly phenomenal even if under the ivy was basically basically a demo i don't know is is the single version of under the ivy um more than the the piano version Oh, mean from uh, the B-side for Running Up That Hill? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's just piano and voice. Okay. I I think, yeah, no, it just goes through, like, she is a creative force of nature, even for the B-sides. Like, not, even in the most um, simplistic creative decisions, she, she's, she's coming at it with, with strong um results i also feel like on this song and especially the b-sides like um uh not this time and uh when we're gonna get to talk about burning bridge that you can maybe probably because she was around her family at this time all those intense background vocals or or and even just the um like the diddly it sounds like diddly die diddly die diddly die dull <laughs> like it's like something from 
it's like filler lyrics from an old folk song or something and you find that on a lot of her the songs from this era and I wonder if a lot of that is because at this point she was around her family all the time and her family just she was just grew up with all of these influences from old folk music where you would have sometimes just random syllables being sung with the melody you know yeah I think a lot of it um, is influenced by folk music and traditional Irish music as um, it's very apparent in the ninth wave where we see traditional Irish um, music shine but I, I think folk music is always played um important role in her life life that in um classic rock mm-hmm. because of because of her brothers and um of course her connection with dave gilmer i mean this is this is after she really gets into experimenting with folk music um because didn't um, a couple years earlier didn't she release um the cover of lord of the reedy river yep which I love that episode that you just met. <laughs> that was a really good episode. Well, but um, I found it really interesting how she chose that song. Mm-hmm. Well, and was not... that or a Captain Beefheart song? <laughs> yeah, no. I, was like, um, I did not know that part. And that would have been, I don't even know what that would have sound, sounded like. Oh, it would have been intriguing, that's for sure. <laughs> well, the point is, is she's taking all these influences from her childhood and what's going around her, and she's distilling it into this bold, genre-less album. And mm. The Big Sky is um, one that I, I think encapsulates this because it, it, it's very much art rock. It's very much... Um, genreless, but it it doubles as a great alternative pop song. From the Kate Bush Club newsletter, issue twenty, nineteen eighty six. It making a video is very like making early albums. I feel a bit disappointed with the results, not having enough rehearsal, a big enough budget, etc, etc. But the shoots were so much fun. It's such a good feeling to work with a big group of people. I seem to like working with such crowds. On both Hounds of Love and the Big Sky shoots, there was a relaxed air. Both shoots involved crowd scenes and was especially satisfying. Besides a large number of performers to fill a stage and give the effect of a live concert, we needed an avenue of people, from the Wright brothers to two astronauts, to simulate aviation history. The Wright brothers looked remarkably like Dave Cross and Peter Fitzgerald Morris, and one of the astronauts looked so like Jay. We also needed a large, enthusiastic crowd, so we asked Dave Cross to organize some members of the club, and 200 beautifully behaved people arrived on the day of the shoot. It was very moving. They filled us all up with energy. It made me feel like a real concert. All the film crew remarked on how incredible everyone was. They had been terrified with past experiences of invited audiences, but I told them they hadn't met the right ones. Everyone left just as beautifully. Nearly everyone with a burnt thumb from being a star in the sky, holding up lighters and waving. I'd never been in the same room with so many stars before. Interviewer. 
Did it take long to edit those clips? Kate. No, I work with John Mister as film editor. On both those shoots, we worked to very detailed storyboards, and in both cases could give John a photo stat of the script beforehand so he'd know the gist of what we were working on. Then he'd do a rough cut by himself, following the storyboard. Then we'd work together until we were happy. He was great to work with, and both edits were very quick, just taking them into the video suite for bits and pieces. But it would have to be transferred to video for TV showings anyway, so all ads, etc., end up on video. The Big Sky was a little more complicated. The beginning part on the rooftops involved a chroma key, where all the live action goes on in front of a blue screen, and then the various weather effects were put in at the edit. The pieces of film with the weather were chosen beforehand and transferred to video. They then replaced the blue screen. My name's Keith Pettis, and I was at the Big Sky video shoot in 1986. Uh, we, ar we arrived at the studios early morning and we, we were kept on coaches for uh, uh, for quite a long time. But uh, then after we were allowed out, we uh, we, uh, we wandered around the studios and we actually got uh, uh, got to uh, see Kate in her costume several times. And, and we, when we went into the uh, uh, when we went into the studio to do our bit, uh, we we were all issued with these. Uh, uh, with these big sky lighters, which are small white things, uh, zip lighters. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at mine now. I've still got it. It still works. Uh, and then, uh, and then Kate and her crew came on, and, and um, followed by the home ground crew. Uh, uh, they all did their dance. Uh, uh, they actually performed the, the, the big sky routine. Uh, and uh, I took a load of photographs, uh, and I've also got photographs from other people too. Um, so I've, I've got an album full of photos, uh, and um, some of them are quite original. Uh, uh, I got I got up, I got fairly close to Kate at the time, and uh, I had a little chat with Paddy and Del Palmer, and. Uh, um, then we all went, piled back into our coaches and went back home. It was uh, quite a very interesting experience. And uh, a little sequel to that, uh, uh, I, I was able to pick up a, an exclusive 7-inch uh, um, 45 big sky picture disc, which I've got, which I believe is a collector's item. So it was a thoroughly good day all around. Uh, I, I met up with some old friends and uh, and made quite a few new ones as well. So uh, yeah, well I hope you can use this and uh, and good luck to Kate if you see her. Bye. And now we have an exclusive interview with none other than Dave Cross, one of the founders of Homegrown Magazine and one of the folks who organized the big fan meetup for the Big Sky video shoot. I was super excited to get to talk to him because, oh, hey, he was actually there. And also little anecdotes like, hey, what was it like to be there and how did this happen and other really cool memories. So we got to talking about the Big Sky 
and a little bit about home ground and how that started. And we went a little bit more talking about other Kate related things. So because of that, we're only going to play you the portion that we talked about with the Big Sky video shoot. So this is a part of a longer interview that is available on my Patreon page exclusively for folks at the $5 level and up, patreon.com slash Kate Bush podcast. And now here is the portion of our interview about the Big Sky video shoot and a little background on the Homeground magazine. So well, who we have on the line here, we have Dave Across, and I'm super excited to be talking to him because we're calling all the way from Virginia to the United Kingdom, going through all those cables underneath the ocean, coming out the other side <laughs> into the United Kingdom. And I'm super excited to talk with Dave Cross today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. That's, that's fine. I'm very happy to talk to you. So, big question here. So, I know you were one of the founders of the Homeground magazine, correct? That's right. Myself uh, with Peter Fitzgerald Morris and Christina Fitzgerald Morris. Awesome. So, how did you guys get started? What was that like, like putting Homeground together? Um, well, basically, uh, I'd been a fan since um, Wuthering Heights and in the... I think it was uh, 1981, I became friends with Peter, who was another fan. And um, we just used, we, um, I worked near where he lived and we would get together like fans have been doing for the last 40 something years and talk about Kate. And at the time, um, there was an official fan club called the Kate Bush Club, which was run by Kate and her family and her, uh, a school friend of hers, Lisa. Um, and they were, they were very good. They, they sort of did um, very personal stuff, sort of, you know, letters from Kay and from her brothers and stuff. But they weren't very good on um, news in the sense of um, the things which we felt fans wanted to know. So, you know, there was a different picture sleeve for this single in a different country or... The video had been shown on this TV, you know, station. And, of course, this was in the early 80s. There was no internet or anything. Mm -hmm. um, so we decided in April of 1982 that we would start a fanzine, um, a fan-produced magazine. So we started basically doing it on a home typewriter and using a photocopy. And we started um, putting the magazine together, and it was, always supposed to be a mix of the news that we could find so reports not only from the uk but from all over the world and also um of letters and features and artwork and stuff that fans had done it mm -hmm. was i suppose really it was supposed to be kate seen through the eyes of the fans that's what that's what we wanted to do um so we started it in 1982 and of course it, that was in the build-up to the release of The Dreaming. And so we, we covered all of that. And um, we um, had contact with Kate's family, her mum and dad, um, who a lot of fans in the UK did at that time. And we sent to them and to Kate via them copies of the magazine. Uh -huh. um, and we started to get feedback from them, and particularly from her mum and dad. They were incredibly supportive um and in 1985 
um, we organised with them um, a fan club convention. They they wanted to do one, and they had the resources, but they didn't really have the the time or the sort of you know the energy really, I guess, to to do it. So we organised a joint convention, which was in the end of 1985, after the release of Hounds of Love. Um, and Kate was very involved with that, and she came to the convention and you know came on stage at the end, and her um, both her brothers and her mum and dad were at the convention, and Del Palmer was there, and we had sort of chats and all that kind of stuff on stage, and it, it was fun. Um, and so then, um, so we had established already a relationship um, with them, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, in uh, I, I suppose it must have been I can't remember the exact date, so I think it must have been March in 1986. Um, her brother John, uh, John Carter Bush, uh, phoned me and said that they were going to release the Big Sky as um, the fourth single from the album, and they were making a video in. At that point, it was about three or four weeks away, and Kate very much wanted it to feature like a, a concert sequence, and she wanted a um, um, a group uh, of you know concert goers, but she wanted them to be fans. And could we organise about 150 people <laughs> to be wow. in the video? Um, and that was how the first phone call went, um, and of course. As I say, this was 1986. There was no social media. There was no internet. So Mm -hmm. we, and and we didn't at that time have the exact details of when (laughs) the video would be. So they basically said, could you get 150 people on standby? It's probably going to be around this date, but we don't know where and we don't know exactly what. So we had obviously at that time a few hundred subscribers to the magazine people who i mean we used to sell a lot um outside of the uk we would we would sell bundles of the magazine to exporters and they would ship it into record stores particularly in america and ah. um, um, we, we had so it, a lot of a lot of the people that in fact we're still in contact with now found the magazine in tower records and places like that in all different record stores um in, in America, but also in Australia and Canada and all over Europe. But what we did was, um, we because we had a list of um, people who paid up front and subscribers, so we, we sent a letter, a good old-fashioned letter, to all the people who were subscribers just in the UK, because obviously, you mm-hmm. know, there was a practical side to this. Yeah. <laughs> so we came, up with, we came up with the genius idea of saying to them, do you want to be in a Kate Bush video? Um, we, Kate is looking for extras. We're not sure of the exact date, but if you phone this number, and we, we gave Peter and Chris's number at this time, on this day, and it was on the, on the Saturday, uh, Saturday approaching, we will, should have the details by then. So I went over to, to Peter and Chris's house, and we started getting, I think we'd said like seven o'clock in the evening or something, but in actual fact, people started ringing all day. We had to take the phone off the hook. Um, and we, we'd got the details then from from Kate's family, from from John, about where the video was going to be. So, 
at seven o'clock, we we dropped the phone down on on the you know put the phone back on. It rang straight away, <laughs> and then for the next sort of three hours, we just had a constant stream of people phoning, and we basically had to tell everyone the information. And the information was that the video was going to be the following week. The video shoot was going to be the following week during the middle of the week. I think it was on a Tuesday, um, and um, what we wanted people to do was come to um, EMI's headquarters in London, which was in Manchester Square. And in fact, it's the building that is it's not there anymore, but it's very famous because it's the, the building where the Beatles look over the balcony. You know, the, the classic photograph of the mm-hmm. Beatles looking over the, looking over the balcony. That was shot in Manchester Square years before. So... We arranged, we said people needed to be at Manchester Square at sort of 7 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning. And then um, they had a, the record company had arranged for two coaches um, to take everyone to uh, L Street, which was the studio, um, which is a very famous film studio. Was it L Street, actually? I'm, I'll have, do you know what? What I'll do is I'll check my exact details on that because it was a long time ago but it was a film big film studio i will check this and message you okay. about that but yes yeah, so so it was uh they had to everyone had to be at, at um emi seven o'clock in the morning to go on to coaches um and they had to bring with them the original sheet of paper that we had sent mm-hmm. them and obviously we had a list of names so by the end of that night we had I think it was about 130 people, possibly a bit more, who were definitely going to come. So we had to type out the list. And I think it was the next day. So I, I called Kate's brother and said, right, you know, we've got all these people. And he said, oh, an actual fact, Kate would like um, you and Peter, me and Peter. They needed two more men to be to play actual parts in the video. Oh! So he said... <laughs> So <laughs> I know. So poor Christina, Peter's Peter's wife, had to, she got the short straw because they didn't need it. They didn't need another woman part for it. They needed two men. So Chris went to Manchester Square and she had all the lists. So she had to tick off all the names and make sure everyone got on the coach and everything. And Peter and I, we drove to the studio to L Street and we reported for duty and um so we actually i'm actually one of the wright brothers in the video and peter was um an 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 aviator he's wearing i'm not sure if he was a particular character because it's in the video standing behind kate there's lots of people and they're all supposed to be different um pilots or aviators so you've got spacemen Mm -hmm. and you've got People and, and myself and, and another chap, we were the two Wright brothers. Um, so that was how the whole thing came about. That was how the process was of, of doing it. Um, and the, a lot of the people who, who signed up were fans, long-term fans at that point some of which are still long-term fans now and still we're still in contact with and they still come to, because we have parties and events here in mm-hmm. the UK and they still come. There's people that 
we're, we're in that video shoot that we've known for, you know, 30 something years, 40 years, some of them. So um, that was the, that was the process. Wow. So what is your favorite memory? I mean, I know this was quite a bit ago, but what was your, probably your favorite, some of your favorite memories from that day? Cause, oh my gosh, that's, that's so cool. Um, oh my gosh. I mean, it was a brilliant day, I have to say. You know how you sort of look back at your life and you think, you know, certain days, that it was an amazing day. I mean, we we got to, Peter and I got there and sort of, you know, signed in and were on the name and we were taken through into costume and makeup and we hadn't actually seen Kate at this point. We'd seen a couple of other people we know and... Um, we our costumes were there, and we we had to get into our costumes, and we had to um, have makeup done. And we were sitting in um, in the makeup and costume thing, and then Kate came in because obviously, and Kate was directing the video. Mm-hmm. This was, I think, the second video that she directed. And she and the um, one favourite little thing is the the woman who was doing makeup said, um, "Do you do you want Dave to have a moustache?" Because I didn't have a moustache, and she said, um, you know, because the Wright brothers had moustaches, and Kate kind of looked at me and went, oh, yes, I think he'll look very handsome with a moustache. <laughs> so I had a false moustache um, on. And um, so we, we got all made up, and th- this was quite early in the morning, and then I suppose by by 9 o'clock, the coaches had arrived, um, and we'd kind of wandered around the set for a bit, and we'd seen Paddy, Kate's other brother, and Del. Palmer and some of the rest of the band, um, so people like Al Murphy and other people that we knew were were there. Um, and inevitably, these things take always take longer. So there was all, the, the, the shots were all being set up, and Kate was already dressed in her silver. She was directing, but she was in the silver jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. So she was kind of behind the camera while they were blocking the shots, so setting up the shots. And I said to Paddy at one point, um, look, there's all the people in the coaches have been here about an, an hour and nothing's happened. Do you think we should go out and just, you know, so they're not feeling left out? So me, he said, oh, that's a great idea. We should do that. So me and him went out to where everyone was waiting, the coaches, and they, and the, and, and they were looked after. They'd been given, like, you know, tea or coffee and, and, and food. But then me and Paddy came out. So, of course, they were all excited to see Paddy because they all knew who he was. So he chatted to people and signed some autographs. And then um, then we got basically taken into the set. And obviously, if you've seen the, the video, it's set up. The end of the the end of the, and this was the end part of the video where Kate's with the band and she mm-hmm. kind of, you know, sort of spins around and dances and... Um, the band are kind of playing. And so they arranged the crowd, they arranged, arranged all the fans around, the stage was like um, a catwalk. So she spoke on the microphone to all the fans and she thanked everyone for coming and everyone cheered. And she sort of said to them, look, you know, I want you to, and she made a few jokes with, with everyone. She was very friendly and she said, you know, I know I hardly ever do concerts, but I want you to do, I want you to, you know, pretend like it's a concert. And, of course, everyone was very excited. <laughs> um, and they had the, they had made up um, cigarette lighters. It shows you how long ago it was. They'd made up, because remember, obviously now when you go to a concert, everyone holds up their mobile phone and there's yeah. a light on the phone. <laughs> but back in the 80s, people had cigarette lighters. So they had, they had made up 
some sort of um, cigarette lighters which had the word The Big Sky written on them. Mm-hmm. And she wanted, they gave everyone who was there one of these cigarette lighters. And they wanted everyone to hold up the, the lighters. I mean, you can't, you can't really see them that well on the video, but they are there. Everyone's holding up the video. So they did a couple of run-throughs, and then they basically spent the next sort of, um, three hours doing a bit of the shot. So they would, they would do a couple of run-throughs, and then they would actually film it. Um, and Peter and I got to stand behind Kate um, while she was doing the... Um, uh, at the end shot and in, in fact in the video you can see us the, the bit in the video where where it goes um and they pause for the jet and mm-hmm. and the the noise of the jet we all had to kind of crouch down and there was a, a, a under the camera there was a cardboard cutout of, a, of an airplane so it cast a shadow <laughs> and again nowadays that would be done in special effects but this was cast with a there was a there's a shadow of a plane that you can in the video mm-hmm. and we we're all kind of ducking down and then the big concert shots all the fans obviously the music was really loud and all the fans are jumping up and down and waving everything um and i mean one of the really nicest things was even though kate was obviously working because she's not only in it but she's directing fans would, would come up to her and she signed loads of the um cigarette lighters so loads lots of people have you know probably still got cigarette lighter with her signature on and she posted photographs and fans were taking pictures and she was absolutely fine about it and there are quite a lot of photographs that you can see on the net of um from that day mm-hmm. and there were lots of fans there and paddy and john and all the dell and everyone were talking to all the fans and it was it was just a brilliant day it was just the nicest day and Everyone who was there, I think, feels very lucky. We were all very lucky. Whether, you know, to be in the crowd or whatever, just to be part of that and to be on that, to, to be, you know, in that crowd and in that, in that you know, it's a Kate Bush video. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're there forever on YouTube kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, it was... It was this just, was just it part was just of a, a longer day. interview with Dave Cross. For immediate access to the full unedited interview, you can go to patreon.com slash Kate Bush podcast and be a subscriber starting at the $5 level for immediate access to the full unedited interview and other exclusive content just for Patreon supporters for the show. That's patreon.com slash Kate Bush podcast. That's the other point I wanted to make about it. It's just a killer piece of music and it's great to dance to. Mm-hmm. And then... I saw the video later, you know, I didn't see the video when it, she released it as the, I think the third single from the album. I never saw the video cause I didn't have a television, um, uh, of my own for a, a few years. So I didn't get, I didn't, and, uh, I didn't watch in Canada. We would have watched much music in the U S would have been MTV. I never, and they didn't play her a lot on MTV. No. Um, I think hounds of love was like the biggest, single in the u.s that she had other than maybe weathering heights was a hit um but, actually um, uh running up that hill was, was the big, only was bigger hit yeah actually running up that hill i looked at it it's was the only top 40 hit that kate bush ever wow. had in the united states she yeah. did chart with 
the man with the child in his eyes, which was right. like, oh goodness, I think I may have mentioned that episode. Like I did, like oh my god, almost like two years ago, I did that episode. Um, and I think that one reached like number eighty-five or something. It it really didn't chart very high. She um, she was on Saturday Night Live, and she did that song on mm-hmm. SNL. So uh, with Paul Schaefer playing piano. So that may have uh, goosed. Yeah, boosted it a little bit. But now this was um, um, well, this was released as a single. It was it was the fourth and final single, um, yeah. released on April twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six, and has some interesting kind of formats. I I'm just looking when I was looking at the stuff about this song and how it when it was released as a single, and you had the seven inch, and then you had the twelve inch version, and sometimes they have a different B sides and all that. Um, it was released as a 7-inch and a 12-inch single. And in the mm-hmm. UK, the single was also released as a limited edition picture disc, 7-inch. The single wow. featured a special single mix on the A-side and not this time on the B-side. Oh, my God. that is To me, that is one of her most underrated songs. Uh, the 12-inch single consisted of an extended remix called the Meteorological Mix, plus yes. not this time and the Morning Fog on the B-side and in the U.S., the B-side was the special single mix, and not this time. Wow. I have to tell you something. What's that? Uh, I may have told you this before, because uh, we've just chatted, like, when we're not recording the yeah. you know, the podcast stuff. Um, I did a show. I did a, a tour uh, uh, with a Shakespeare company. We were touring all over Ontario, and we were in a place called Kingston, Ontario, which is um, one of the oldest uh, uh, towns in um, Canada, really, um, certainly in Ontario. And uh, it's where our first prime minister is from, Kingston, mm-hmm. or where he lived anyway. And I think it was the capital of Canada before Ottawa for a little while, English Canada, I should say. Um, so anyway, it's a cool town to visit. That's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, I've uh, been there a lot. Uh, it's where Queen's University is. There's a killer record store there, like a ridiculous record store run by a very strange guy. Um, and he's got so many records that when you go into browse, you can't flip through the records. I'm talking vinyl here. You can't mm-hmm. flip through them. To go through the records, there are so many records in the racks that you have to take out like 15 records and put them beside you. And then you can, you know, finger flip through the records that are in there, right? So the first time I went there, I'm going, this store is driving me freaking crazy. There's, it's like, it, uh, but, um, you know, I can't believe I'm doing, I'm having to do this and blah, blah, blah. And this guy's nuts. He was, he was a little nutty. Um, and he didn't have the record I was looking for. And then I was walking out and then I went, oh, look at the Kate Bush. And I, do you have Kate Bush? And of course he had a big Kate Bush section. And um, I went through it. And sure enough, the, um, Meteor, meteor, I can't even talk right now. Meteorological. (laughs) Yes. Mix was there. That 12 inch single was there and it it was very reasonably priced. And in fact, I think it was underpriced and the, the cover was slightly damaged, but, um, uh, it was a good price and the record was in stellar condition, but instead I bought the British pressing of, um, Lionheart, ah. uh, because it was a steel, and it was in brilliant, 
condition. So I bought that and I left and then I went, Oh man, I can't fucking look like this is me getting back to Toronto months later going, why didn't I buy that too? What was the matter with me? You know, mm-hmm. I should have bought that. And then, uh, I didn't work for the theater company again for about two years. And, uh, I, I got a part in one of their shows, and of course, we went back to Kingston. And I went, I bet you it's still there. I bet you nobody's walked into that record store in Kingston, Ontario, and is going, I want the 12-inch Big Sky. I'm going to take that. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it was still there, and I bought it. Yay! So two years, like two years later, it was still there. So I have it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I mean, I've heard the meteorological mix before. Um, uh, I forget where I first heard it. Well, it was a video. It was a video that I saw on YouTube. Someone did a very cool kind of, you know, using different, um, combining, um, I think, the dreaming and, um, and the Big Sky video. And you, I think I saw it on YouTube. And then um, there's a terrific DJ in Toronto who does a couple, he does a, Saturday and Sunday night live streams now. He used to be on radio. Um, and he plays it every once in a while when he plays Kate. So um, I have heard it. I had heard it. That's why I was kicking myself because I was like, oh, I should have bought it. I could have had it on vinyl. Mm. So I bought it. I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. Yes, I'll definitely. I'll take a picture of the cover. Yeah. Just so cool you ended up with it anyway. Like, yay, I yeah, just love how it, that worked out. I just had this feeling. I just went, if it had been in Toronto and I had gone back for it, um, the guy would have said, oh, yeah, some, some Kate Bush freak came in here and picked it up, uh, you know, months ago, buddy. Too bad. You snooze, you lose. But uh, I just knew because it was Kingston, because there's a, Kate Bush is more of a, a cult thing in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not so much in the last few years, but still in Kingston, Ontario, the people that go into used record stores in Kingston are looking for other stuff. They're not looking for rare Kate Bush records. Like I tend to try and find her records in places like that. Whereas in Toronto, it's always the same two or three records. I never find what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just had, I said, I bet you it's there. I got to go back to Kingston. I got to go back to Kingston. And sure enough, you know, two years later, it was still sitting there waiting for me. So (laughs) I was delighted, delighted. And it was cheap. I couldn't believe what he was selling it for. It was like 10 bucks or 12 bucks. I said, it's got to be worth more than that. But um, yeah, it's a good store. I highly recommend it to anybody. I don't remember the name of it, but I could take you there if you want to go to <laughs> Kingston with me. Uh, actually, I'll uh, I'll look up the name of it. I'll send you the name of the record store. Yeah, I'm curious to see it. if it's still there. The record store will still be there. Um, it's only been uh, the last time I was there was about two years ago. Mm-hmm. There's two excellent used record stores in Kingston because it's a college town. Most college towns have good used vinyl stores. I love the music video. Okay. Uh, I what do you not like the music video oh no i do too like it is so exuberant oh my gosh you have to just like it fits the song yeah it does it is of all the songs that were released as singles on the i mean my favorite favorite video 
is running up that hill like we talked about. This might be my second favorite um, video from this album because it's just you want to just get up and just dance with her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's playfully. It's well, I wouldn't say low budget because there's a lot going on, but it's not like it doesn't set like the cutting edge seriousness and and then um 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 detail that like running up the hill or hounds of love has as a music video but i think this is one of the best music videos from the album Mm -hmm. of the four because it's so fun and there's a lot of references and dancing and it's it's just it is i mean it shows um where she's going going to go into um um when it comes to future music videos some of them like love and anger mm-hmm. where she just bur- bursts into dance and and i don't know it's just i love the music video um and from what i've heard is that a lot of the backup um dancers and, and people in the music video were Kate Bush fans like that. I remember hearing an interview about mm-hmm. how they did the video. I think that adds to the likability and um of of the song and the, the general um mood it gives off. Mm-hmm. It's really open. And I feel like songs that I mean, this is kind of a song that's hard to find songs like, but in today's pop music, there's either kind of an openness that the song has or none at all. And I really think that that's um, the reason behind the song being so great, because it is open and it is, it's just makes you instantly happy. Mm-hmm. You can't listen to this song and not be sad. I mean, come on. <laughs> I I mean, I listen to sad songs when I'm sad, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I mean, I did grow up on the Smiths, but no. <laughs> I know. Me too. <laughs> no, but this song, um, I like listening to happy songs when I am happy and joyful and this is, I mean, it's just, it's awesome. It's just, it's, it's just optimistic and it's empowering and it's just um, quirky. Mm-hmm. And I love everything quirky. It's just, Last year, uh, uh, somebody posted like early in 2019, like what was the album you played the most last year? You know, everybody's doing their album wrap-ups and best-ofs and whatnot. And somebody posted on Facebook, what was the album you listened to the most last year? And I posted, well, interestingly enough, usually any other year I would say, I couldn't tell you, you know? But I do know because of what I played at work and because I play certain things at work to keep my sanity. 
<laughs> so what I played, what I know played, I heard more than any other album last year were these three albums, one of which was Court and Spark by Joni Mitchell, which I discovered by playing it at work that it's one of those rare things. It's an album that I can play and never get tired of. Mm. Like enough with this album. I can always listen to Court and Spark. And I went, that's really interesting. And then there's a Quebecois mm-hmm. album um, that I feel the same about. And an album by a, a French-Canadian group in Sudbury, which is in Ontario, where I did the theater and used to walk to rehearsal listening to The Big Sky. Um, uh, their album, like about four or five albums I played at work. And because I was playing them repetitive, repetitively, I went, yeah, those are the albums I played the most last year. And The Big Sky. I know that's <laughs> the song I've played the most. That's an easy, easy answer because the times where I got in my car to drive to work going, I hate this freaking job. I'm going to lose my mind and put that song on. I I cannot tell you how many times I've played that song in the last year, especially (laughs) in 2018. I played it a lot in the car. Usually I'm in the car. And in fact, I'm sure I played it last week driving to work at least once. So, yeah, it's the song I play the most. That's the, that's in, in a nutshell. It's the song I play the most. So that says something for the song, even if it's not my favorite song, you know, even if my real favorite song is like Stardust by Hoagie Carmichael or whatever, um, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. The song I play the most is The Big Sky by Kate Bush. There you go. Yay. Okay. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Cecily. Yep, indeed. I hope we do it again soon. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, of t- taking the time to talk about Kate. It's always great to chat with you. And yeah, woohoo. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. Wow. So now we're going to be going from a very exuberant song, which was this week's song, into a rather skeletal and creepy kind of song next week. Next week, we're going to track four of the first sign of Hounds of Love, Mother Stands for Comfort. And for that episode, I have two fans on the show. We're going to get to hear from Paul Tate again, and also a new fan who hasn't been on the show before, Shanna Britnall. So that's all going to be next week here on Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. And thank you all so much for listening. See everybody next time.